Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and David Scott is on assignment somewhere in Europe. Uh, so uh, it's me on my own this week, um, and we've got an excellent guest for you. Uh, and it's based around, look, this thing that we had the recent by-elections on so-called Super Saturday a couple of weeks ago, um, and they underlined something important for the direction of public and economic policy. Um, and anyone who's been a pain, paying attention to published opinion polls or even conversations at the pub, I reckon, will be well aware of this. Malcolm Turnbull's coalition is in trouble with voters, may well be turfed out at the next election, which is likely at this stage in May next year. Now, a change of government will have some pretty significant implications for public and economic policy settings in this country. And to look at what's driving all of this. Uh, I'm joined this week by one of the most senior Labour political strategists in the country. It's Eamon Fitzpatrick. Eamon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Look, we're lucky to have Eamon on the show because uh, he doesn't do all that many uh, media appearances, but let me just quickly run through some of what he's done. Uh, he'll uh, hate me for uh, going through some of this, but uh, look, he's um, uh, director of Hawker Britain, uh, the Labour-aligned political consultancy. He also runs the public affairs, communications and issued issues management business for uh, Hawker Britain. He served as senior press secretary and advisor to both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard during their prime ministerships. Uh, and before that, he was a director of communications for the New South Wales government. Uh, as a bonus, he likes rock music and maintains an excellent Instagram account. We might chat about some of those things later, um, but I'm looking forward to getting under the hood for Eamon's insights, uh, which I've always found uh, prescient and uh, insightful in the, the times we've uh, spoken on and off over the years, Eamon. Now, look, um, one of the things we talk a lot about in terms of economic policy at the global level is the impact of populism. There's Donald Trump and Brexit, um, and in certain countries, Europe, we're seeing this um, global movement, which is having a major impact on not just financial markets, but public debate and policy in different countries. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the lessons we can draw from the by-elections. And we're going to talk about house prices and the potential impact of axing negative gearing in some other parts of Labour, uh, economic, uh, Labour's economic platform. Now, straight into Longman, uh, a pretty convincing win for Labour up there, um, it can be a little bit risky to read too much into by-elections because, you know, classically there's a little bit of a protest vote against the government. But as you saw it, what did we learn? Well, I always look at by-elections as partly that, you know, as partly what should uh, both parties take from it, but also how you try and extrapolate the much broader mood around it and just how much it plays into the way people are thinking. I think if I was the government looking at those by-election results, I would be very worried right now, given that over the sort of nine weeks leading into that, they, they were very successful in trying to build up a case and a claim that this effectively was the end of Bill Shorten, this effectively was the end of the Labour Party, and this effectively would be a ringing endorsement of Malcolm Turnbull and some of his key policy decision-making. Uh, things which he's trying to get up and running. Um, so, you know, if I, you know, and I think the takeout for all of this for, for, for both the coalition and for Labour is that really do not take the electorate for mugs. And I think you sort of see the work that went on in both campaigns. I think you can really tell the difference in terms of the story each was trying to tell. You know, um, and I think absolutely the electorate responded to one thing. They want better services and they want to vote for someone who agrees with them, who thinks there's too much pressure on hospitals, that schools don't get enough funding, 
you know, those were two key issues. And I think if you were the coalition trying to push a policy of corporate tax cuts and this is good for you, that sort of patronizing attitude towards an electorate just doesn't work. It just doesn't cut it. So, look, there's a critical thing here, which is um, the, one of the big things that, that Turnbull keeps getting clobbered on. Uh, uh, anytime uh, Bill Shorten gets in front of a microphone, he talks about giving billions of dollars in tax cuts to the banks. Um, how does that play as you see it? So, Hawker Britain, obviously, you do a lot of on-the-ground research, uh, and you're also very closely involved with the ground game uh, uh, for the candidates. Uh, what was the feedback that you saw coming through uh, in the month leading up to Super Saturday? Well, I think people were increasingly responsive to what Bill Shorten had to say. And I think the by-elections gave them a point in the cycle uh, where they could actually start to focus on some of the arguments both sides had been making. Usually what you see between uh, elections is, you know, interest basically drops off. So the electorate doesn't pay as much attention. Uh, you know, you really sort of struggle to try and get people fully engaged. And on, people realise, oh my God, there's a by-election, I have to go and vote, do I? Oh, yeah. You got it. And then, you know, I think, you know, to give people nine weeks to think about it, what we actually saw is people did start to think about it. And they did start to have a closer look at what was being offered, you know. I think uh, in terms of the campaign, I think Labour's campaign, especially in Longman, was particularly strong because Labour covered all the bases. They had the right candidate. I can't stress that enough. Susan Lamb, you know, a rock-solid person who had raised her family there. You know, she understood the electorate, had run a small business, all of those sorts of things. She's a tough lady, and that is a tough electorate. And people gave her credit for that. You know, it began, I think, on pretty shaky ground because I think the electorate was over Section 44. There was a lot of fatigue. So she actually went into that race with not much sympathy for her personal circumstances, you know? But politics, fairness is, you know, neither here nor there. She's a very tough lady. So, so well, I think one of the really interesting things about Longman, when you think about, like, the, the drumbeats yeah. in the distance um, uh, that are beating, Longman has a lot of the features uh, that would... Ver like, so there was a couple of other electorates... Um, that were, uh, you know, the WA ones, so Fremantle and uh, uh, what's the one in Perth? Um, uh, the, 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 the urban one in, in Perth. Perth. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was the Perth, yeah. the seat of Perth. So um, you Fremantle and then and then Perth, right? And they were just sort of, they were, the LNP didn't, or the coalition didn't compete. Um, and it was a contest between Labour and the Greens. And, you know, that was always going to, uh, you know, so you were never, there's not much you can ever take from that. Um, but with Longman, competitive, outer suburban, uh, you've got a strong protest vote or this populist factor going on with a pretty significant jump in the One Nation vote. You're huge, yeah, yeah. huge. Um, so, which uh, appeared to almost all come from LNP support, right? So primary vote for the LNP, Dan uh, what well, it ended up with about nine points. Yeah, that's right. Uh, which is, I mean, in your experience, uh, have you seen a collapse in uh, primary vote of 10% uh, 
you know, in those kind of swing seats before? Well, I think it's it's a pretty rare thing. And I sort of struggle to, to think of something that would be comparable uh, sort of in the sort of recent sort of history. I mean, we've seen it on a sort of broader level. I think Queensland, there were two wild back-to-back swings in sort of the sort of broader state elections. But Longman as an electorate, it's really fascinating because it is volatile. It's not consistent in terms of you've got a really broad sort of spectrum uh, in terms of the sort of socioeconomic conditions. You know, you've sort of got some of the classic outer metro people who we sort of think of as battlers, if you like, but people who are doing it tough, people who do need some help. Um, you know, we've got people, you know, who probably are much more wealthy, some retirees in around that Bribey Island area. And then we've got some like semi-rural sort of spot to, you know, place like Alimba over towards the sort of western part of that electorate. So really, really broad range there. And I think that's why it's such an interesting test. It's almost a microcosm, if you like, in one electorate, you know, because um, the conditions can sort of change. And so I think, you know, it was it was a combination of things. Good candidate a message that was very, very strong and very, very simple, very easy for everybody to understand. Who isn't concerned about health? Everybody is. We have such a great public health system, people understand that. You know, health insurance is such a huge issue, costs are rising, all of those things. People understand that. Schools, whether it's a public school, whether it's an independent school or a Catholic school, huge. You know, these are all huge issues. And uh, wherever you live and whoever you might be, if you have a family, your kids are going to go to school. And they're going to, at some point, get treated in the local hospital. People really respond to that stuff. Mm. You know, so I think that was it too. And also, I think, you know, I really wonder about, in the end, the coalition's choice around candidate. Uh, We know in Queensland, the Campbell Newman legacy is still strong. We saw that in the 2017 Queensland election. I mean, I think it's starting to tail off. But I really think people did not forget that three-year term under the Newman government. Right, the and cuts to services, huge public cuts. service. Yeah, 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 unprecedented cuts. And Queensland is a state that really does rely because of its size on public services. Um, that and you know, so for them to pre-select a candidate who was an MP in that government, you know, I, I question why anyone would even do that. Yeah. You know, given what happened in the last state election. So so that's a very specific Queensland issue. Uh, let's talk about the rest of the country, right? So, um, you know, obviously we had, um, uh, there was also, what was the, the seat in Tasmania? This isn't what I do on a day-to-day basis. The, Braddon. Uh, Braddon. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, again, um, uh, held um, so um, by the Labour Party by a smaller margin, you know, a bit more of a competitive race. Yeah. Right. Um, the interesting thing about that for me is that Tasmania is probably one of the few pockets of Australia at the moment where there's, you know, really strong house price growth, you yeah. know, people are feeling good, it's kind of booming, there's a lot of opportunity there, people are moving down, uh, the population mix is, is changing a lot, and the infrastructure, apart from in Hobart, is generally sort of, mm. you know, um, coping okay. Um, so there's, you know, a bit more of an upbeat mood, whereas when you get back into the cities, um, I think particularly, you know, Sydney starting to really feel the strain. I think probably fe- people feeling a bit fed up yeah. with all the impact of the infra- infrastructure problems. So yep. um, that's a um, lay person's view. Yeah. But So you talk about what you see now around the country, particularly, say, at Western Sydney and the yep. other um, seats that are going to um, be decisive uh, next year. Yeah. Well, again, you know, it's we, we are seeing the sort of, you know, cr- I mean, this is coming to a crunch, you know, and what is sustainable? And, you know, 
large parts of the country actually have a relatively high standard of living. I think that's the one thing a lot of people can agree on. You know, when you compare us to many other places in the world, you know what? It's pretty good living in Australia. I think we all agree on that. And therein lies the challenge is how do we and how do successive governments and how do you as a political party try and maintain that for people? You know, I mean, I always tell an anecdote of my own arrival in Australia. I grew up in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is not much public land. So I came to Australia, my friends in Hong Kong, this is 91. People ask me, what is Australia like? And I would say, there's no, there's no problems. And they say, how can you say that? And I said, this is the land of public golf courses. That, to anyone growing up in a place like Asia or you know, any crowded Australian city, any, any crowded Asian city would blow your mind because mm. there you've got to be a millionaire. These days a billionaire if you want to play golf, right? Yeah. So, you know, well, isn't there that famous one in Bangkok? Uh, the um, you know you, you you pull up to the end of the runway when you land, <laughs> and uh, you see the the caddies running around. That's uh, exactly right. That's exactly right. So you know, like you know, there is a high standard of living. Yes, there are pockets of disadvantage. There are pockets where people do it tough. No one's saying that. You know, but by and large, we have created a country and an economy, an economy which has held up incredibly well. I mean, we sort of how often we sort of forget that how often we forget we have consecutive growth. We haven't been affected by problems that affect the rest of the world. And so I think that actually makes a really fascinating set of circumstances because, you know, and I know we're going to get to talk about populism and stuff. Mm. Populism really works in places where people are doing it much tougher than a lot of people in Australia. That's where it really sort of takes off. So, you know, it's interesting to see some of those roots taking hold here and really what, I mean, it's a question of what people's expectations are. And I think that's why... We've, we've sort of hit a point where there has been a huge boom, there has been a bit of sort of stagnation. I think reality is starting to kick in. This, this whole new century, uh, you know, um, economy we're now in. And people are starting to readjust. And it's doing all sorts of really, I think, fascinating things, you know? The rise, well, the, the, the sort of rise again of, of the union movement, you know? For many years, the unions were struggling. And people will say union membership in Australia is on the way down. But actually, you look at the work the unions have been doing, and you know they're responding to a need. They're responding to a concern. So you know it's driven by wage stagnation. When times are good, we know people don't think they need to be part of a um, trade union. You know, but things are starting to change, and people are starting to realise that. You know, people look at unions, all the gains. A lot of people think, why would I join a union? You know, I've got superannuation. You know, I've got you know, a working week. I've got leave learning. I've got all those things, you know? So people, a lot of people forgot. But it's, so, an, it's interesting. So they're sort of coming yeah. back. And so, sorry, yeah. Paul. So, and that all ties into we are dealing, I mean, that's just a symptom. Mm. And I think there's many symptoms. But uh, we're, we're starting to see people realise, well, you know, we have had a high standard of living and let's not let that go. And how are we going to get there? So there's, it's a really interesting thing, the wages question. And we talk about it pretty regularly on this show. Because wages growing at two percent on average, and and inflation um, at that level too, right? People aren't getting ahead. The issue is that the cost of a whole bunch of essentials, um, electricity, um, private health insurance, you know, um, well, private health insurance isn't optional. Is optional. But last week we were talking about how private health cover levels for people in their 20s are going backwards. So people are ditching it. So your millennials, young people who are 
starting to get into that period where they're starting to get some earning power and um, well they should be getting some earning power should be maybe they're probably trying to save for a house all of that kind of stuff and they're looking around for things to cut yeah. and one of the things they're doing is private health insurance and that's a very clear signal to me which is about declining standards of living right so you kind of look for what is a declining standard of living as an economist would talk about it what does it really look like and one of those things might be opting for lower standards of or the lower tier of healthcare. you know public health you know system is excellent in australia and it's probably yeah. one of the really good things mm-hmm. uh, you can see a doctor when you need one um but obviously private health gives you some security around if you ever do really get sick that you'll get a certain standard of care access to specialists all that kind of stuff um so that's one really interesting indication the other thing is just people being able to make ends meet mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know household bills bill shock i think particularly Ooh. all of those essentials like electricity water and upwards pressure on those um, is starting to get people to sort of think about, you know, how do I sort of get things working better for my family? Um, And uh, the RBA governor has talked about workers finding themselves uh, in a weaker position because they're a bit maybe more insecure about their job being automated out of existence. Um, they see the kind of disruption that goes around in industry, and so there's that. Uh, and Michael Blythe, uh, who's the chief economist at the Commonwealth Bank, right? Now, not exactly, uh, you know, um, sort of a, a table-thumping unionist, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but he has talked about we need to get government and workers and industry back thinking about structured uh, wage increases in some sectors because this issue is starting to squeeze households. Um, Is that something that was coming, like this cost of living pressure, right, which we talk about all the time from an economic perspective? How does it play out at the political level? Well, I think we we are. I mean, look, you're right, and all these people are right. It is starting to bite. We have to readjust. People are starting to understand, I think, and they are starting to feel the the impact. And, you know, they're presented with one set of circumstances. Wow, life's good. You should be okay. We've never had it so good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that's sort of a lot of the messaging they see around them, but that's not what they're feeling. That's not what the lived experience is has been for them, particularly in recent years. So yes, cost of living, cost of living will always be an issue, uh, you know, and and increasingly, I think in the last 15 years, it's been a feature of every single election campaign in some form. You know, I think it's interesting. I, I think the end of the sort of Howard Costello years was probably, you know, when I don't think it was mentioned once. In fact, we were paying people to have children. <laughs> let's not forget all you know the, you know the baby bonus uh, well, the let's not forget the baby bonus which generated huge sales of you know first generation flat screen TVs mm. I mean you know that's where I bought my first ones <laughs> you know Tim is now 18 years old but, <laughs> and the TV's long gone but anyway uh, you know so you know, people are starting to take stock. They are starting to take stock, and they've had to because they've had to make adjustments in their own household. So what does that mean? That means when they're in the market looking for um, a government, they're looking for political leadership, they're starting to use the same, they're starting to see things through the same prism as they are in the rest of their lives. Who's going to protect me? Who's going to protect my family? Who's going to make sure if I don't have health insurance because I can't afford it anymore because it's not particularly great value, who is going to make sure 
that the hospital is going to be able to see me. And, you know, time after time, we know uh, when people consider both parties, Labor's traditional strengths are always schools and hospitals, always, you know, and that's where it's going. And I think in many respects, uh, some of these electorates understood that. And Longman and Braddon are really good examples of that. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Okay, so let's talk about the populism thing. This, uh, you know, this disillusionment or, you know, disenchantment that you're sort of referring to slightly there. This is a thing that in other countries has driven um, some pretty radical outcomes in elections. Now, um, you know, I think there's a couple of things going for uh, Australia in that regard. One is that, um, uh, you know... um, Australians are generally a reasonable bunch, yeah. although you wouldn't think it when you, if you look at Twitter. Um, um, <laughs> but but also we've got compulsory voting, which means that you know the reasonableness is kind of um, forced to show up on uh, on 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 a polling day. Yeah. Uh, you know, people don't forget to vote, yeah. um, so they so they rock up and they cast the vote. So you get this kind of you know it's harder to get that the political style of campaigning where you where you really energize a base like we see in the US um, and Italy. Um, so you see those, you know, and that's where you see those results coming through with those more sort mm. of like very extreme candidates out, mm. on, each, out on each side. So um, those leaders are seen as being, you know, as having tapped some magic thing in, in, the, in the community, right? Yep. Now, sometimes um, Bill Shorten's opponents will characterize him as a populist, right? Um, how do you respond to that? Is he a populist? Well, I think you just look at the results of those by-elections and you look at the sort of response he's getting again. And, you know, it's not populist to be talking about wanting to address schools, hospitals, property prices, people doing it tough. That's just common sense. You know, that's common sense. And it's interesting. So just from a messaging perspective, that's a pretty dangerous thing to try and label your opponent as that when really his key messaging and his key arguments are just the basics. These are just the basics, you know? And I think there's a flip side to that, which is if that's what you're accusing your opponent of, in some ways, you're sort of admitting that you're probably a little bit out of touch. I mean, I think it's a real danger there, uh, you know, just in terms of a sort of political um, exchange. So, you know, um, people respond, people respond. And, you know, I think, so, you know, I think Shorten's opposition has done some pretty remarkable things. You know, they haven't been a small target. They've put it all out there. He's got a very strong economic team around him. You know, you've got the likes of Chris Bowen. Jim Chalmers. Who's Chalmers, Jim is fantastic, yeah. you know, also. So between Jim and Chris, you know, he's got really strong leadership. You know, you look at Tanya, you know, Tanya Plibersek, Penny Wong. It's a people who they know their stuff, they're experienced, and they're totally realistic. And, uh, you know, and they do have a very genuine approach. They understand that they need to win people over. And the only way to do that is to put your policies out there, you know, which is what I think we've seen under Shorten. You know, so if the best his opposition can come up with is he's being populist, so be it. But I think there's a, like I said, there's a very dangerous flip side to it if you're the person accusing him of that. The other thing is that he's, um, uh, the other attack line on this is that he is consistently um, rated um, as um, much far lower than than Malcolm Turnbull in terms of in the preferred prime minister question in yep. the published polling, um, and with the view being that he's not popular and people don't like him. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, again, if that's all they've got, I think it's pretty slim pickings. And let's not forget, unpopularity uh, relative to a prime minister. I mean, historically, that's a non-issue for opposition leaders winning. I mean, look at Howard in 96, Abbott in 2013, you know, and even Bill in 2016. How close was that? You know, and I think if that's all they've got, it's going to be, you know, very difficult for them in an upcoming campaign. The reality is voters are voting on their government, number one, um, and, you know, and then they are looking at the alternative government and do they have confidence in that person's ability to lead? And I think if that's the question, do you think Bill Shorten knows how to lead a government? Well, overwhelmingly, yes. Overwhelmingly, yes. So I think the popularity question is a bit of a, you know, I think it's a bit of, it's a, bit, it's, it's, it's a pretty cheeky issue, you know, and let's face it, if Tony Abbott can get elected, and he was, and he was astoundingly unpopular, if Tony Abbott can get there, anybody can. Okay. So you mentioned, I think, something that I think is really important and a a, a huge factor in Australian life generally that, you know, um, we've had, you know, more than two decades of continuous economic expansion that has built a pretty well functioning, um, pretty harmonious uh, uh, society where you can generally get to see a doctor when you when you need one. Um, There are good schools um, and, and people are generally, you know, uh, are able to get on with things. Um, now, one of the things, one of the factors that's important in that is attracting overseas, not just people, but companies, yep. right? Um, and a vital argument, and being Irish, uh, I certainly saw how cuts to the company tax rate um, transformed the country in terms of uh, investment. Now, there are Absolutely. We had the uh, head of the, the government agency that attracts foreign investment into Ireland on this show last year. Yeah. And I put this thing to him about, uh, you know, d- you just get this because everybody uses Ireland as a tax haven. Yeah. Uh, and I got a pretty robust, shall we say, response right. from him on that. <laughs> He's like, you know, yeah. well, actually, people come to Ireland for all of these reasons and then tax cuts. The tax rate is the last. But uh, surely you see the... Uh, the element of this in a in a company decision, if they're thinking about coming to Australia, well, if, if I've, my decision is between Australia and Singapore to locate my corporate business, and Singapore's rate is nearly half that of Australia's um, on, on the level of um, profit that we're going to be generating if we fulfil our ambitions, mm. then why wouldn't I just go to Singapore? Well, um, they might think that. But, you know, Singapore has would have some advantages, but anyone who runs a business knows that it's more than just that. It's more than just that. I mean, we got a very highly skilled, a very, very smart, very multicultural workforce. I mean, incredibly so, you know, which is, you know, which is a very healthy workforce because it gets looked after, you know, well-educated and by and large, a pretty happy workforce. If you are running a business in this day and age, that's huge. That is huge, you know? And I think, number one, that, you know, people who are going to make the decision to come to Australia, it's based on that. You know, I'm no tax expert, I'm no corporate tax expert, but from what I understand anyway, uh, you know, ultimately, our sort of average corporate tax rate comes in a little bit under the OECD average anyway. So, you know, that's when all things are considered. So, you know, if you're going to run a business in this part of the world, I think Australia is, it's a very, very exciting place to be. So I don't quite buy that sort of argument that we should just slash corporate tax. 
You know, there's a lot of people here who don't actually pay tax, as we know as well, and that's also part of the issue, hmm. you know. So I think that has to be looked at, you know. But I think you look at Shorten and you look at Chris Byrne and Jim Chalmers, I mean, the things they talk about, you know, Labor's come up with this proposed Australian Investment Guarantee, you know. That's basically, you know, that allows anyone coming into Australia, a company coming in as an investor, you know, anyone investing in Australia, it allows them to depreciate their assets very quickly. And I think that's probably one of the smarter ways, you know, it's one of the sort of smarter incentives is basically the trick is not just getting them here, it's getting them here and making sure they invest here. Hmm. I think that's actually the key difference. And more and more people are sort of onto that, you know, more and more people are starting to work that out. Do you think some of the rhetoric might call um, that, We've been through particularly um, the, the last year, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's constant, um, you know, um, you know, giving billions of dollars to multinationals. Uh, when the other side of that argument is, well, look, we need to find some ways of get, attracting capital into this country, right, um, and also encouraging businesses to invest. Um, do you think that some of that rhetoric um, has put um, shorten in a difficult position with business, um, you know, as he sort of builds his case for, for, you know, running the country. I think they've been pretty receptive to him. In the end, what a business want? Business wants consistency and they want a bit of certainty. You know, I can tell you he is in, a, he is in great demand right now, right across the business community, you know. There's not a day that doesn't go by where, you know, there's 50 people want him in a boardroom lunch. People, you know, 50 people want to come and sit down with him and his team and work all this stuff out. Business wants certainty. As long as you know what's going to happen, uh, you know, you can, you can plan for it, right? That's the golden rule. And, you know, how do you do that? Well, you know, you engage with a party that gets elected and it's a party that has its policies out there. So there's no surprises, no surprises. And I think one of the things people are over is the sort of chopping and changing. And it's funny because you look at some of the commentary now around Turnbull and that is, well, is he going to go ahead with his package on tax? And then suddenly things aren't certain there, you know? And, you know, he's supposed to be the great economic manager, but really we're starting to see the sort of this uncertainty take hold, you know? And you only need a couple of examples in politics that leads to instability. And when you have that, I think it's the big beginning of the end for anybody. You sort of get into that death roll. A really good example, I think, is work choices, you know, which is now much maligned, right? Work choices, I think, is a fascinating political example because it was put in place by a government and a prime minister who would have thought uh, that they had built up the political capital to get this done. You know, these guys thought they were doing it for the good of the country, all that sort of stuff. And they thought he had the right constituency, you know? he. He was pitching how he was pitching this to business and they thought it was great and they were pitching it to the workforce, flexibility. And it's funny, that just turned very quickly um, and they went weak as soon as the sort, of, the sort of lived impact of that happened. So suddenly his constituency on Talkback Radio were ringing up, you know, to UE and 2GB and it was the people voting for him. It was their grandchildren who were, you know, working in fast food shops and all those sorts of things suddenly being hurt by this and then suddenly that just got a life of its own then it was too onerous or it was too arduous in some respects so then employers and businesses started complaining so then they, they sort of did the half back down where they sort of admitted yeah maybe we got it wrong then they set up a whole other bureaucracy to, to try and manage this and even and then that wasn't really effective either and that i think was basically the sort of final death roll mm. for that government because 
it was just wildly inconsistent. Mm. And, uh, you know, any message they thought they, were, they had around making things better just went out the window. And it galvanised their opponents and a whole campaign against them. What about, so, like, um, Bill Shorten needed to, to roll back a, a thing that he said he blurted out at a presser um, on winding back the legislative tax cuts uh, to, to medium-sized businesses. Um, you know, he kind of said one day that, you know, yeah, we'd consider um, uh, winding those back, uh, which goes to that uncertainty that, you know, you're talking about. Um, and, um, and then, um, you, you know, 48 hours later, he said, okay, well, I've consulted with my colleagues and um, that's not going to be the case anymore. Um, but there's this general thing and there's this general feeling and one of the problems that's more magnified in, in places like the United States. Um, but this thing that people just can't feel like they can't take any politician on their word at, at the moment. Um, so, you know, isn't it hard for politicians to talk, you know, just the general environment, right? Let's take the party politics out of it, you know, you know general environment, um, this kind of collapse to this cynicism, sort of voter exhaustion with politicians saying they'll do one thing and then eventually actually not doing it. A coalition being a classic example, Tony Abbott, disastrous um, budget in what was it, uh, you know, the with Joe Hockey, where they had promised no cuts to a whole bunch of things. And then lo and behold, here's the budget. Oh, we've cut services to all of those kind of things. So I'm just saying that, the, you know, this is on, this goes to both sides. Yep. And the lived experience for people is that politicians routinely break their word. Yep, that's right. right. So how do you, how, how does a politician these days manage that and convince, try to convince people that, look, I am trustworthy? Well, that's a really great question. And I actually reckon this is manifesting itself. Sorry, poorly put, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a fascinating issue. And it is a challenge. It's a challenge for every political party. You know, there is no easy answer, but ultimately it is, it, it is in your actions and your sustained actions over time. Um, I, I take your point about Shorten um, and then coming back two days later, but really the takeout from that is, if you're watching that, is, well, you know what? He does have a team. They do do it collectively, and that's okay because you know that's something you can rely on, you know? That's okay. I mean, I, I don't think that's an issue, really, because people accept, you know, from time to time, you know, people say something. But it's over, it's over a period of time where it happens repeatedly, and you can't get around that. And I think the most effective politicians have actually worked out, you know what, a big part of this is actually showing people what you can do rather than just talking about what you can do. So let me give you an example. I think a great example of that is Anastasia Palaszczuk. She is someone who has, you know, had faith in herself from the get-go, but she's had faith in her approach. Her approach has got nothing to do with her and everything to do with the systems and the processes she puts around herself and runs, and she oversees that, and making sure she consults widely and making sure people understand that. And, you know, someone like Palaszczuk gets in there, gets the job done, and moves along. You know, she doesn't sit there. She's not seeking the limelight. She doesn't want to posture. She doesn't want to impose. She's not interested in that. She just gets it done. And you look at her government. They went from seven to nine seats to minority, and now they've got majority government. And she's going to election in two and a half years. And if she keeps it up, she will win again because, you know, she's got very clear policies. 
People understand what, what there's no surprises with, um, with her. She's very clear about where she wants to be and she gets it done and she doesn't get in people's way. They don't want that. You know, people, I think there is a real mood out there where people want their government to do the job they put them in for and just get out of the way. It's not about you. And that's why I think when you get distractions around personalities and individuals and people, that's where it starts to really sort of fall apart, you know? Mm. I mean, you look at some of the sort of big names that have gone down recently in federal politics, you know, whether it's someone like Barnaby Joyce, you know, what was that? You know, mm. I mean, that really impacts on a government's ability to get something done because it just becomes about the personality. You know, let's be honest, people don't like politicians. Yeah. And just like to point out, there's uh, Emma Husser as well. Of course, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but Barnaby obviously was the was the spectacular uh, soap opera one. Um, let me go back to one quick um, one quick thing, which is a policy question, right? So I think pretty much every economist that we get on the show, we always talk to them about house prices. There is an increasing sense of concern about where this is going and um, uh, the decline in house pricing appears to be slowly but fairly steadily accelerating. Um, there's... Um, so there's people who made some investments, right, that might turn rotten and um, that is that is bad for them. Um, but then there is a question about a point where this reaches a the, – the, the house price declines become to a level where they become a problem for the economy. And there's a way – there's a whole bunch of ways that that might um, play out, but – the first way you'd see it would be in declines in consumer spending. People saying, okay, well, like I'm going to pull myself under the covers, stop spending. Um, and with consumption being almost 60% of GDP, then you start to have problems with growth and you might get problems with uh, the employment levels and then you're off to the races, okay? Now, um, the Labour Party is proposing winding back or stopping negative gearing uh, on investment properties. And there has been some analysis that this would ha have an impact uh, on further depressing house prices, particularly in areas where there is a lot of in, uh, investment properties. Now, do you think, how do you think that would play out? Like real world, right? This would maybe the end of next year and house prices might be down 10%. Um, you know, um, there's a question about whether that might be a straw on the camel's back that it would be unclear what the uh, what the impact might be. Well, I mean, I think property prices in Australia, particularly in the major cities, really, you know, are they going to slow down? And if they if they do slow down, how much are they going to slow down? It's very relative. But you know, the question I always ask myself is, you know, would you be in would you be in a better position had you waited to buy any property? You know, uh, or would you have been better off buying 10 years ago or 15 years ago you know and i honestly overall in our lifetime the demand for you know among people around the world people want to come here they want to live here we have an amazing lifestyle you know it's a great place to live and i think it's always just going to keep driving that along you know and clearly you know I, i'm not you know i can't speak for bill shorten or labor that's not my job but clearly there is an issue there around getting the balance right and how we do make things fairer and how we do look after people who want to get into the market but can't, you know? So th those are really important issues as well. Mm. So, you know, clearly that's what that policy is designed to do. And, you know, for as many people you might hear, 
you might hear from who don't think it's a good idea. There's many people who think it is a very good idea. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I mean, we talk about this all the time. I mean, it has become a really big social issue. There's a lot of people out there, um, particularly living in Sydney. You know, people want to live in Sydney because there's a lot of great jobs here. You know, there's, you know, the technology industry that's here, um, you know, financial services. Um, if you want to go into those areas, um, you know, Sydney is kind of where you want to be, and there's a lot of demand for housing. You know, for you know, ha- for housing alongside those things. What we've seen uh, in the last year has been people have starting to leave the state because, probably because, um, there is a very direct. It looks like that it's because just look, it's too expensive getting out. Going to Brisbane, yeah. uh, you know where I can where I can get a decent house and uh, correct, you know, you know um, which, which is exactly right. And so that's making actually making other states more competitive and more attractive, you know. And I think Australians are used to travel; they're not afraid to travel, you know. So particularly on the eastern seaboard, really, you can live anywhere now on the eastern seaboard. You yeah. can commute, and in the age of technology, you don't have to always physically be where you work. All the, in fact, we know there's companies that actively or who actually have policies where employees work at home for one or two days a week. You know, yeah. That happens all the time. So really, you know, I think we're getting to a really interesting point. You know, Brisbane, I live there at the moment, I can tell you I meet someone every week who has moved to Brisbane from Sydney because they can get a really nice four-bedroom house, family house, they can bring their family up, you know. It's an hour on the plane to Sydney. It's an hour on the plane to Sydney. That's exactly yeah. right, you yeah. know. So there's all of those things. I mean, I think what's really interesting about, you know, Labor's policy, it's, it's, all, it's actually a recognition of what many, many people have been saying for many years, which is our policies around, you know, what concessions we give around property ownership. I mean, they were designed for a different time. They were designed for a different time you know? Mm. And like all good policy, you've got to look at stuff. You've got to see, does it still apply? And the reality is we live in a world that changes faster and faster every day, you know? So it's actually good government and good policy to make sure all your settings keep up. And there's no harm in having a look at things. That's what I think, where it's sensible, you know? where it's sensible. It certainly is one of the things that I've always found fantastic about Australia um, and surprising coming from Ireland, uh, how mobile uh, people are, you know, that people live in Adelaide for a while or they live in Perth and, you know, move over to Sydney or whatever, particularly like coming from Ireland, where if you're from, you know, Gort in County Wicklow, That's home, yeah. you know. You don't live anywhere else. You live down the street, you know, um, from from where you grew up, and that's your community, um, you know. And you might, you know, uh, go away and work somewhere else for a little while. But you know, if you're coming back to live in Ireland, you're going back to live in Gort. Um, look, it's been a great chat. Let me just quickly, uh, we'll just quickly mention. Uh, you mentioned you live in Brisbane, um, uh, so you fly around a bit, uh, a fair bit, and you've got this terrific Instagram account, and you've kind of mastered. <laughs> too kind. Uh, you've mastered the uh, the the the, <laughs> the the shots of uh, Sydney and various other uh, cities, Australian cities, uh, from from the air. Um, what are your favourite tips for you know, like taking that perfect shot when you're on uh, business travel? Well, you know, I think planes. The, so if you have an Instagram account and when you look at what Instagram accounts do, the most popular ones basically give you a real sense, don't they, of freedom, of isolation, of people not being around. That, that, that's, um, that's one of the big, you know, the pictures that sort of do that are the ones that really, really go off normally. And they, you know, I think that's, you know, particularly travel and food are two huge parts of Instagram. So, you know, if you're traveling and you're eating, you know, you're mad not to, you know, if that's what you want to do, you know, some people don't like it at all, I get that. But, you know, I, I've really come to love, you know, 
handheld devices have made photography easy. They've made, and they're becoming, you know, imagine, you know, I would muck around with the cameras when I was a kid, but, you know, to go and take photos, get the negs done, print the phone, you know, so oh, arduous. Pain, yeah. No, yeah. you can just do it now with, <laughs> yeah. you know, with just the click of a button. So, and Instagram's such a powerful app that way because it allows you to edit. So that's a really amazing thing. But the tips are basically look for unusual angles. Nine times out of 10, the best pictures are, you know, not just holding up your camera, which is what anyone else could do, but when you're looking out of a plane window and you're trying to get that shot looking down, when people really respond to those types of pictures, mm. you know? I do. Yeah, particularly the winter we've had, uh, you know, with the sun beating down on the cities and Sydney's so, you know, egregiously beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's made for some, uh, for some great shots. Yeah. Um, look, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week um, has been uh, Hawker Britain uh, director Eamon Fitzpatrick. Eamon, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing all those insights. No, great to be here, Paul. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is on iTunes under Devils and Details, or you can search your favorite podcast platform under that term too. We're uh, on Twitter individually and Instagram. You can probably look us up too. Um, the show is produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next time. Hold up. 